0: This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellingham, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Welcome, everyone, at episode two of Radar by Nextworks. And first of all, thank you very, very much for all your kind reactions and for listening to our podcast with so many of you. It gave us a lot of energy, and we cannot wait to start with this second episode. And I have the same team here with me today. I have Laurence from Nextworks. I have Julie from Nextworks. I have Juren from Nextworks. And then I have Peter, keynote speaker, author, Pascal, China expert, and myself, Stephen, to guide you through all the things that excited us in the last month. So welcome in this new episode of Radar. And to kick it off, I was personally really intrigued by a message that Volvo showed this week. I don't know if you guys saw it, But uh, Volvo announced, of course, that they will invest more in electrical vehicles. That is in line with the expectations. But I was really surprised to hear that by 2030, they will only sell cars on the Internet. And I can imagine that, you know, if you want to do a transformation like that, that you will probably have to start working on that already today, because I really wonder what they will do with all the showrooms, how they will change them, what will happen to the salespeople, how they have to reskill them. And it's just another step in the evolution that we see in the whole mobility industry that is yeah, fundamentally changing that entire industry. So I was intrigued by that. And I was wondering, Pascal, as Volvo is now part of Geely in China, if that is something that you've seen there more often, or is this also revolutionary for Chinese standards?
1: No, not at all. I, I actually think, I mean, Volvo is Geely these days, although they prefer to brand themselves as a European brand still, but the owner is a Chinese. And I'm 100% convinced that he got his ideas from what's happening in the market in China, because uh, there everybody's starting to sell online. It started with the pandemic about a year ago, people were forced to sell online, but cars has been something that already for many, many years were selling online on Singles Day. I remember, I think it was three years ago, it was like in 10 minutes, there was like 50 Maserati sold on Singles Day online. So this was a trend that already is a few years. But just last Singles Day, just uh, three months ago, there was 380,000 cars sold online in 24 hours. To give you an idea. So I think China is kind of like already in that mode and uh, we can expect that China will lead that all the way. It's not just cars, but cars in general. If you look at that, there is also companies like Volkswagen have trained 70,000 of their employees to uh, sell cars. So everybody's been trained to do that online now. And so everybody's selling cars online. Porsche has been hiring online celebrities and uh, NIO, the electrical vehicle car, the CEO who has been streaming online as much as he can to sell more cars. So it's kind of the normal in China.
0: But is it as extreme as Volvo saying we will only sell online? Do you see that trend as well?
1: No, I don't see that, but you have to know that in China, already more than 50% of all the products are sold online. So I think (laughs) whether you say 100 or 50, it's very close one to the other. It just takes time to get to 100. Right.
2: I think it's an interesting phenomenon. I mean, I think the impact is going to be enormous. I mean, think about the dealerships. I mean, mm-hmm. think about the independently owned dealerships that are now uh, selling Volvos. But I think it's part of that fundamental shift that we see in mobility. And, and I think that idea of going online and pushing towards platforms, I think is an inevitable choice, but it is quite a drastic choice. But one of the things that I really, really like about Volvo is that If you remember when they were acquired by Geely, the Chinese company, most of us in Europe thought, okay, that's down the drain. I mean, this is where the Chinese will come in and probably just uh, take what's left of the factories and ship it to mainland China and just build cheap copies of Volvos. And I think the miraculous transformation of Volvo as a brand is a really good example of, I think, what can happen if you see the potential of Chinese capital and scale, And combine that with, you know, the creativity and engineering that Volvo had, I think that combination is really powerful. And for them to make that step, I think, is pretty exciting to witness that.
0: Mm -hmm. I can imagine if you're a car dealer right now, Volvo, like you say, the independents, that it must be scary that you suddenly hear the message, we're going to switch for 100% to online. I mean, they have the switch in going to electrical vehicles, they have the switch now to online, they have these huge investments. So I can imagine that it's going to be really, really interesting to see how that will go.
2: They already did a a test with, of course, their electric uh, Polestar engines because Polestar was something that they really put out there as an online activity and an online brand. And I think that was probably the first step and probably it was successful enough for them to make this uh, pretty dramatic and drastic move. Mm -hmm. It's
3: also something I would like to add here because, you know, in the United States, Cadillac, for example, is going for an all-electric uh, model and the dealerships don't want to sell the electric car. So actually, I do believe that Volvo making this choice is really bypassing the dealerships because they are afraid that they are not going to sell the electric models. It might be less important in Europe that this happens, but especially in the United States, where dealerships are independent and can choose what to sell, I think it definitely makes sense to go for this model. The one thing that bothers me, though, is you always lose when you walk into a car dealership, but there will be no more haggling about the price, right? I mean, (laughs) you won't be able to negotiate. You will always pay the full sticker price of the car. So I'm really curious how that is going to work, or are they going to do discounts whatsoever? I think that's an interesting question. Maybe. You never
1: know, right? Actually, in China, they're giving discounts to people in the stores. So One of the cool things about this online is not just that it's easier for companies like Geely, but also that all the salespeople start having a personal relationship with the potential buyers. And so you really feel that you get to know the story behind the people that work for Geely or work for Porsche or work for another company and so it's not just about the brand it's about the culture of the company that now gets part of you and so yes they do try to get discounts and they do get these discounts and in China just so you know many of the cars sold online on singles day were sold at almost 50% discount.
2: Wow.
4: I was wondering that like what's the selling point is it in the customer relationship or is it still just superior products uh, is there anything to learn branding and strategy wise from China and, and given that they have more experience in this model already
1: Yeah, it's definitely the relationship. And we see that specifically in cosmetic brands or in travel brands, which is also a great example. Ctrip, the CEO of Ctrip, which is the biggest travel company in the world after booking.com, but now with the pandemic, it might be the biggest, so I don't know that. But uh, the CEO, he dressed up in traditional clothes And he went from province to province to do a little show, to show how the traditional culture of that little city was about. And after people got out of lockdown, the travel boomed in China like never before, and everybody was traveling inside China. And so he just did that by live streaming the potential areas. And so I do believe that online could become very, very personal and very, very cool.
3: I am really looking forward to the day that uh, Herman Dies the CEO of Volkswagen, is doing something in Bayern with beer and lederhosen. It's definitely <laughs> something very exciting, Pascal.
0: And that yeah, brings exciting. us to the world of entertainment. And if you see the big <laughs> jump that we're making online and what we're discussing now with cars already happened, of course, in the music industry years ago. And Laurence, you wanted to share some new Spotify statistics with us, right?
5: Uh, Yes. So if the relationship between musicians and Spotify would be a Facebook status, it might read it's complicated. Um, (laughs) A lot of the musicians feel that the company does not pay them enough. And so Spotify came up with a kind of weird solution for that. They launched a website called Loud and Clear to offer, and I quote, Clarity about the economics of music streaming, and the website shows indeed uh, many statistics and insights. Examples are the ranking of songs or how Spotify paid over five billion dollars in royalties in 2020. And Spotify also puts a lot of efforts in that website in explaining that it pays the rights holders which can be a record label, a distributor, an aggregator, or even a collecting society. And this conveys that Spotify does not control how much money these right holders pay to artists. So I'm not sure if this website is the best response here, because if you were a cynical person, which I'm not, you could compare it to someone explaining to a drowning person how boats work, and that there are many others like them who have great boats. So don't get me wrong, I really love Spotify. It's a fantastic system if you are a user, but if it keeps ignoring the pains of the artists, I believe that it may get into trouble. Now, we all know that artists are really struggling for revenue today because the systems they functioned in, which was already deeply flawed, completely broke down since COVID-19. The normal procedure is that when you make a product, like a record for instance, you should be able to live from that product, especially if it sells enough. But musicians, like writers, rarely make a living from their product. And instead, they make money from the marketing of that product, which are the concerts. But those are no longer possible today and the entire livelihood of musicians collapsed. Now, this is obviously not the fault of Spotify, But I think that it should be aware that if it won't help change the system it functions in, that artists will find other solutions to make money because they will simply have no other choice. And the most obvious solution in this case seems to be to cut out the middlemen like the record labels and even probably the middle middlemen like Spotify. And I think that book publishers and possibly even gallery holders could face the same problems. And part of their disruption might come from the blockchain and even the much overhyped N-word, which are the NFTs or non-fungible tokens. These NFTs could very well be a great solutions for artists who want to manage their own revenue and even continue to make it as their creation gets resold later on. But I'm not going to go deeper into the NFTs because I know a person who will be much better at explaining it Tell me in
3: the next topic. Laurence, I think you have a valid point there eh? with the industry going into the wrong direction. But uh, like you say, the artists are not making a lot of money and it's because the system is flawed in the first place. But... On the other side, and artists are not going to like me for saying that, but a song or an album, basically it's worthless, right? The value of a song is really very close to zero and in my opinion, I do think that if they want to make money they have to do concerts and touring and that's the, really the way they can make money. Of course, right now with the whole COVID craze, that's kind of impossible, but at the same time I mean, it's something we've seen in the past eh? I grew up with Napster and Kazaa, so I downloaded music like there was no tomorrow as a teenager and in my head a song is still worth zero euros but i would happily pay 80 to 100 euros to see my favorite band so i do believe the secret is there and spotify is not the villain here although they could do much better that's my personal opinion of course yeah
5: but i think it's true spotify is not a villain But it's the entire system that is flawed and Spotify functions in the system. And if it does nothing to make the system better, I think that in the long run, it will get into trouble. And it's true in this system, the music is worthless for those who make it. And just like that, um, books too have become pretty much worthless to the people writing them. But instead of trying to figure out how musicians can make more money out of, I don't know, online concerts using the old system, should we maybe not ask the question, how can artists receive more money from their own products?
0: It's a question in general. It's not just artists, it's journalists. If you look to the whole Mm -hmm. debate that is happening in Australia, where uh, Facebook now has to pay if they publish an article on Facebook that is written by an Australian journalist. I mean, in the past, the media companies were almost like cheap factories of content creation for Facebook. Now they have to pay them. So there's an evolution. I think that artists will become angry if Spotify doesn't solve it. It's like YouTube that has to pay their YouTube stars. It's like Facebook paying journalists. So you see that there's a movement towards ownership of your intelligent rights that you created. So that's going to be an interesting evolution. Another thing that you mentioned, uh, Laurence, was, of course, the hype of the moment. eh? NFTs, you were very careful. You said, I'm not going to talk about it eh? because someone else knows more about it. That someone else is Peter. He is our blockchain expert and NFT expert. But it's crazy. I mean, now we don't even have to explain what NFT is. And the last time we made our first episode of Radar, which is five weeks ago, nobody in the world used the word NFT except for a few artists that were experimenting with it. And now it's like the hype in the world. So, Peter, what is your view on this craziness?
2: Well, um, it's crazy and it's not crazy. I think what I like about the NFT, so for those of you who've been holed up and have no idea, it's non-fungible tokens. It's something that actually, if you look at the evolution of cryptocurrency and blockchain, which we've all witnessed in the last couple of years, there is the creation of coins which are interchangeable. I mean, something like Ether and something like Bitcoin. A Bitcoin is a Bitcoin, like a euro is a euro but you can actually use the exact same technology to create something that you cannot exchange, which is truly unique. And that is a token which is non-exchangeable, non-fungible, and that's an NFT. And I think, of course, it became extremely notorious when a couple of weeks ago, we saw one of the first really big artistic works being sold for $69 million, which was just an insane amount of money. And what it was, was just, 5,000 digital images stitched together, and the artist, which is called Beeple, but you know, he's actually called Mike Winkleman. He actually spent 5,000 days creating a unique work of digital art every single day, and he put the 5,000 days together into one big canvas. And that entire digital painting, if you want, that digital collage was sold for 69 million dollars. It was auctioned actually at Christie's. The funny thing is. Whoever bought it, you know, paid the $69 million entirely in Ether, you know, in cryptocurrency, which is like really, really cool. But all of a sudden, the whole world went crypto crazy, NFT crazy. And, you know, the craziest thing was that even Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, actually sold his first tweet. Now, this is where it gets really crazy because actually, Jack Dorsey's, you know, first tweet has been around for all this time. You can just google it and you find it. I mean, this is just a couple of words. And in a way the NFT, I mean, Jack Dorsey's tweet was sold for 2.9 million dollars, which is crazy. But actually all you get is a certificate that you were the person who was crazy enough to actually buy that tweet for $2.9 million. That's all you have, because it's not something that is taken away because you bought it. I mean, it's still out there on the Internet. But what it shows, and I think this is interesting, is that there is a revival of the whole crypto scene. It's now hotter than ever. And what you see is that Bitcoin and Ether, which were seen as exotic a couple of years ago, are now absolutely mainstream. But now there is an explosion of use cases and ideas and new tokens. And I'll be very honest, our house has gone completely crypto crazy. We now all have our own wallets. Some of the people in our household have multiple wallets. And the number one discussion at the dinner table is crypto. And I think it is exciting because let's be honest, in the world of finance, If you put your money in a normal savings account, it does nothing. And at least there's, you know, the the fun part of watching these things actually really materialize into something that is exchangeable and tradable and just fun. So I don't think this is the beginning of the end. I think this is, my God, we haven't seen anything yet. I think we're going to see this go on and go on and go on. And I think really it's going to become much more mainstream than we have ever thought in
0: the past. Did you already uh, NFT something, uh, Peter, like the cover of your book? You NFT the cover of your books?
2: No, no. I'm waiting for something which is uh, maybe something really fun and unique. But, you know, I think at this moment I have no intention of NFTing something. Would you do that, Stephen?
0: I don't know. I've been thinking about it just for fun Just to nft the cover of my last book the original cover and then see what happened but i didn't do it yet i was in doubt because it's a gimmick then i don't know i don't know if i want to do it but it looks kind of fun to do it but i fully agree with you peter i think this creates opportunities for fan engagement Mm -hmm. like we've never seen before i can imagine that like for artists but also for everything that is related to sports everything that is related to artists every brand that has a community of fans I mean, the possibilities here are just crazy. Yeah? We're going to have branded communities around NFTs and branded coins. Peter, me and you, we got invited by rally.io, which is a startup in the blockchain world. And rally.io invited us together with 100 other people to create our own personal coin. So, Peter created the Next Coin for Nextworks, I created the CXM Coin for customer experience management. We're still figuring out what to do with our coins, in all honesty. I've been using them, for instance, to reward people. If they share my content, I send them a coin. So if someone is sharing this podcast, ah, we can send them a coin. But we're still in a discovery phase. But you feel that we're going to have these branded economies where you can create your own economy. And we're playing with it. But just imagine what Beyonce or Ed Sheeran or... Club Rouge can do with NFTs and with branded coins, I think the possibilities to create new ways of brand engagement are just endless here.
2: Yeah, and it's fun because, I mean, we're in these rally creator coin meetings uh, every week. And it's wonderful to see all these different creative people just thinking about new use cases. And one of the things that I've seen a lot is that people, for example, artists would invite people to Clubhouse where they have a private session, where they do something really fun and very creative. And then you can get invited to the clubhouse session, but then actually to thank the artist, you tip the artist using their coin, which is like a really fun use case to think about. So, Stephen, I fully agree. This is going to be fun to watch, and I can't wait for all of us here to think about how we're creatively going to use the next coins to engage our fans and
0: our listeners. Can't wait. Juren, we're looking at you to uh, come up with crazy stuff (laughs) for NextWorks.
3: I'm really excited about it because, you know, what this reminded me of, and I looked it up just before the talk, um, you have this game on the Ethereum blockchain, it's called Crypto Kitties, and it's non-fungible tokens before they were called like that. I mean, basically, you breed kittens on the Ethereum blockchain, so they are unique, you can exchange them, you can ask money for them. And I really like that game because it's really, it's exactly this, but then, well, at a fun level, but they created the first NFTs, I think. And uh, Steven, you know what the baseline of that company is? No. It's a, the future is Meow. So <laughs> just saying, it, it's, it's something really nice. And I believe that there is a lot of possibilities for it next to this crazy stuff. But Lolo, I think you're quite into these NFTs as well, eh? No.
5: Yes and no, (laughs) but I just just wanted to add something. I think it's a really interesting evolution because we are not used that online products have intrinsic value anymore. And in a world that is increasingly evolving towards a a sharing economy, I think it's very interesting to see a quite old school concept of value and of ownership that is resurfacing. I, I think it's kind of weird in that way. And also a lot of people when they talk about NFTs always are saying, it's insane. Why would you pay for something that has been around for everybody to see and share and copy? And at first I thought it's true, it's insane. For instance, that people, arts is everywhere for anyone to see, but if you think about it, you can say that of the Mona Lisa as well. It's online, it's in reproductions, it's in memes, it's on posters, on t-shirts. So in that way, it's actually not that different.
0: And, you know, we've been talking about crazy cases here and some big gimmicks, but as we said, you know, it's going to be a fundamental change in branding and fan engagement, but it can also change society. Like last week, China unveiled its new five-year plan. And Pascal, if I saw it correctly, blockchain is also going to play a vital role in the future of China, no?
1: Yeah, there's many technologies that are going to play a vital role in how China's transforming itself. I think the 14th five-year plan We just started a couple of weeks ago at the two sessions, which is every year. So every year there's like 3000 very boring people coming together, but they're very important people. And uh, for most people in the world, this seems like a theater where nothing ever happens. But for me is the most exciting week of the whole year, because that is the moment where actually the politicians in china decide what the next year will be and i believe that now the next 5 years is going to be critical the next 5 years is really going to be the moment where china is trying to catch up with the west i don't know peter you wanted to say something no
2: i was just wondering pascal when you know you have those boring people together do you actually follow all the sessions or you just watch the summary i'm just i'm just curious
1: <laughs> no the, it's actually a whole week And so every day you can follow the summary of every day. And and there's two parts, there's, I'm not gonna bore you with the details, but there's a National Party Congress, and then there is the Consultative Party. And so these two, both of them are making the laws, and the other one is actually consulting on what should happen for the laws for next year. And National People's Congress is the most important one. But the interesting thing, and that's why I get excited, is because this really sets the goal and the targets for the next five years because this year was the first year of the next five years. And if we look back five years ago, then we see that they exceeded every target almost. So whatever they say, it's probably gonna be more than what they put on paper. And so if you just look at what they put on paper this year, it's really impressive. Usually it's about economic goals as well as social goals. So this is about GDP. And it's first year that they don't have a real target on GDP. just has to be above 6%, so not much more. But we expect it to be around 8.5%. That's what we expect for this year. And then there's things about technology, uh, of course, about jobs. Uh, Social-wise, there's healthcare, environment, poverty. It's just a subject which now they got rid of all the extreme poverty in China, so they don't need to talk about that anymore. So now it's a different target. And uh, for the next five years, the technology part is really cool. It's really interesting because five years ago, they said, "Made in China 2025. Don't know if you heard about that, but that's really where China intends to catch up with the West, specifically America. And uh, so there's still five years left to do that. And to do that, they are going to put a lot of money, and that's 380 billion US dollars, every year into R&D, just money to spend to do research and to develop products in different categories. It will increase every year. If I'm boring, you you should tell me eh? because <laughs> I like these numbers, but <laughs> every year it will increase with 7% in growth and uh, of that growth every year, that's $380 billion. Today there's about 8% in research, in basic research. Well, the U.S. that spends about half of what China does in total R&D from the government point of view, is spending actually 18% in basic research. So in basic research, they're almost spending the same. But China wants to catch up to the U.S. and say, we want to do 18% as well. And that's the plan for in five years from now. The sectors that I think are interesting because you mentioned blockchain. Actually, blockchain is not on the list. Blockchain is one of the few that has no target. And that was the same as AI five years ago. Five years ago, when they talked about AI, they said, we just need to promote AI. And then five years later, it turns out they're everywhere in the country. But it's not on the list. What's on the list is artificial intelligence this year that want to actually lead globally. Very clear. It's a simple goal. Quantum computing uh, is very important. And semiconductors, that's the most important one. They don't want to be behind the US. We all know because why is that? Healthcare, genetic research, biotech, neuroscience, that's really high on the agenda. And all these things have targets. And then the thing we talked about last podcast, which is space. But they don't only want to go far out in deep space. They also want to go in deep sea. So they want to go as deep as they can. And actually, China is going deeper than anyone else. So if you want to go really to the bottom of the ocean, you have to go to China.
0: The dark side of the ocean.
1: Yes. So you have the dark side of the ocean. And China's there already. Nobody else is and also the polar expeditions, because there's a lot happening there between going from China directly to uh, Scandinavia. So these all have targets. What doesn't have a target, but they just want to be the leader in the world, is blockchain and vaccines. And so these were mentioned, but they didn't want to say how much, because otherwise people would probably get worried that somehow they would have to catch up with China. I think this five years really shows that China wants to attract the talent from everywhere in the world, because they have now the market. I mean, everybody in China needs that tech. They have the money, they have the infrastructure. Think about 5G, and now they just need the talent, and that's the big question mark. And I don't know, Peter, what you think. Are scientists from Silicon Valley or from Europe going to flock to China because they're getting paid twice as much, or they have a much better 5G infrastructure, or much better cloud computing infrastructure? or I don't know, what do you think?
2: Well, I think honestly, I mean, if you look at top scientists or top engineers, they are drawn to the challenge. I mean, I don't think they really care about infrastructure as long as that enables them to do really cool stuff. I think if China can really position itself as the place that that's where the action is, because that's where you get to do really cool stuff then I'm pretty sure that's going to be a magnet. I mean, over the last couple of years, we've seen that in a place like Shenzhen, for example, there are quite a lot of Westerners who are attracted by the fact that they can do stuff there. That is truly amazing. And what I like about your story, Pascal, is that, you know, it shows that the idea of long-term planning, I mean, five-year plans seems so completely alien, you know, to this, you know, fast evolving world. But I like it when they set really ambitious goals. And I think this is something where the world is now a little bit envious, I think, of what China is doing in the sense that where we live in Europe, I mean, it's very difficult to have really ambitious, long-term goals that people get really excited about. I mean. Maybe it's just you, but I have an urge to actually listen to those boring 3,000 people, because if they can spend a week talking about deep sea exploration and the future of genomics, that sounds like a really fun party to be at. But I think these long-term goals that people get excited about, I think that's what we need more And I think we've got to find a way also in the West to deal with that. Look at climate. I mean, climate is a very interesting topic. Or look at mobility. And I think that is something which Europe certainly has the capacity and the need, both in terms of mobility and where we're going in ecology to really put those big, big goals out there. And I think it's the only way to see them as something that people don't find annoying. But if we get the excitement back into those long-term plans, I think we're actually capable of doing amazing stuff.
1: And the question is also if these goals, because, I mean, with climate change, with the Paris Agreement, it's very clear there's been put goals forward. But besides environment, most of the other industries... I mean, China has its goals, Europe has its goals, America has its goals, everybody has its own goals. And the question is, aren't problems these days all becoming global problems? And shouldn't we have somehow global goals or at least try to get to that, whether it's mobility, education, healthcare, whatever? So I'm not sure yet how that is going to play out. But I do think China setting forward some goals might trigger other companies or countries to actually follow through. I don't know. I hope so.
4: I like that last point, but also it's not the goal as such that works. I mean, you have many companies and uh, like the Paris Agreement as such as well. It's not that every country gets or reaches those goals. So I think what's definitely remarkable to witness is that China actually succeeds and um, even more those goals. So maybe they have a secret key there that you should uh,
2: teach us.
1: Yeah, they're just obsessed with targets. It's as simple as that. <laughs> they're all engineer-minded, so they—they they are nothing
2: wrong with an engineer. I would say <laughs>
1: nothing wrong with activity. an engineer.
5: I just have a question, Pascal, for you. What would you answer to those climate experts who say that China may be quite ambitious in its long-term goal of reaching net zero emissions before 2060, but that it's underwhelming in its short-term goals towards 2025 um, in that matter, which would make it unlikely to reach these 2060 goals?
1: Yeah, it's something many people have been writing about. uh, Mm -hmm. And it's one of the topics on the five-year plan that was a little bit under-delivered. So people had thought that China would come out with a major plan on ecology and climate change in the two sessions. My feeling, but I could be wrong, is that they will do that in November when there's the big next uh, climate uh, change uh, accords. And and so I think they're going to wait for the right time to do it. But at the same time, As I said before, China tries to put realistic goals and then exceeds them. And so one of the problems in the next five years is that if they change completely into renewable energy, then a lot of people will have no heating in the winter. And that is a reality. And so they are putting nuclear plants there. They're putting still some coal plants there just to cover the next five years. And it doesn't make any sense from a logic point of view because these coal plants that are being built right now In five years, they're going to destroy them. And so it's going to be a total waste of investment. But that is maybe the way to go about it. And to also have very short-term goals to just cover the next leg and then basically keep on the long-term goals. But just looking at the transformation, I mean, it's amazing what they're doing in terms of ecology. I mean, the renewable energy on solar, on wind, on hydro, even though they're the biggest polluter in the world, they're also the ones building most of that renewable energy. The big issue is... A lot of, the, of those solar panels and wind mills are not connected yet to the energy grid. So the energy is not going to the households yet, and that will take some time. And that's why they're behind in the five years, but they will catch up the next five years. So you just have to wait until the next five-year plan.
0: It's a cool evolution, eh? and it's not just happening in China. I think if you look at what France and Germany are doing, they also have big plans right now. Uh, they're putting billions on the table to make sure that they will beat China in the race to replace fossil fuels. I mean, we can put something on the table there, right? not you've been looking into this.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that the ideas they have in Europe are pretty solid. The only fault in what they are doing right now is that they are using their means and their finances for the wrong purposes. Like, uh, for example, when we are talking about clean energy, we're talking about hydrogen, something that, Pascal, you might know that, but China is also heavily investing in hydrogen. But in Europe, they are doing it because they want to make the move to hydrogen cars, and in my opinion, I mean, that's ridiculous. It's something that even the car manufacturers themselves are saying right now. Hydrogen cars are more difficult to build. They require more maintenance. Um, Hydrogen is nowhere right now. I mean, the hydrogen we have right now is mainly gray or brown hydrogen. So FYI, um, brown hydrogen is derived from coal and gray is from uh, natural gas, which is hardly natural, of course, as we know. So I really think that the EU is putting forward a good target if they want to produce more green hydrogen. But I believe they have to focus on industrial processes like steelmaking, for example, rather than trying to push hydrogen cars. It's not happening. Volkswagen is saying it. Daimler is saying it. Um, I mean, the only ones focusing on hydrogen cars right now are the ones lagging behind in electric cars, like, like Toyota, for example. So... Yeah, I'm triggered because in a way, I like the fact that Europe for once is thinking more than five years ahead. But at the same time, again, I'm disappointed by the fact that they, in my opinion, are just caving to lobbyists and doing whatever they are being told by companies like Shell. So uh, it's a a discussion I really would like to have.
1: Or they maybe just missed the market of EVs and uh, are trying to catch up with whatever is still available out there.
3: Yeah, most likely. I I don't know. It's hard to say what's going to happen there. Uh, They might be correct when it's for trucks. They are aiming big on road transportation for hydrogen trucks. But even there, Daimler has already said that they are not going to produce any hydrogen trucks anymore. The same for MAN and Scania. Might be too late there as well. But for shipping, for sure.
2: Yeah, and it's a shame because the technology is really cool. And, and yeah. I love the perfect clean simplicity of hydrogen, I think. It was one of those things where I would hope that it would have a real breakthrough and then it just didn't happen, Yeah, you know? But I think it kind of shows that this mobility future that... You know the combination of technology, the combination of innovation, but also of regulation and you know public policy. That is a powerful mix, and I think you've got to get it right. And of course, it's a lot easier in China where three thousand boring people get together and say, "Damn, that's what we're going to do." That doesn't work here. I mean, it's the complex interwovenness of all these different factors and actors that you have to take into account. But I do believe that mobility is going to be one of the most exciting things going forward, and you know the role of policymaking there, I think is crucial. I mean, we saw something very, very interesting recently just in the UK. And if you guys saw that, but um, Uber, of course, have had a, a really shitty year. I mean, with ride sharing down 75% in most places because of lockdown and quarantine, et cetera. But uh, as you probably know, they dodged the bullet in the presidential elections this year. And the reason is very simple, is that in California, there was uh, basically legislation that Uber would have to reclassify the drivers, not as an independent contractor, but as real employees. And Uber lobbied very heavily because, you know, at the same time as the presidential elections in the U.S., there was Proposition 22, where the Californian voters could actually vote on that. And they spent hundreds of millions of dollars lobbying that. And when not just Joe Biden was elected, but Proposition 22 actually got passed, I mean, Uber said, oof, because it meant that they didn't have to reclassify the drivers. But what happened just recently in the UK is that in the UK, that didn't happen. So in the UK, that is exactly what happened. So we have new legislation now where Uber now needs to treat all of the 70,000 drivers they have in the UK as a worker meaning they're no longer an independent contractor, but they have minimum wage, they have holidays, they have pension plans. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of the reasons that Uber is just gonna back out of the UK because it shows how difficult it is. You can have a great idea and wonderful technology, but you have regulation and you have the public environment that you have to take into account. But mobility, I think, is one of the most exciting frontiers going forward.
4: I agree. Uh, Peter, to your point, I'm curious. I'm not in the backing out camp. I think, uh, as you mentioned earlier, in terms of mobility, it's also a combination of what's happening in the corporate world, but also how is individual behavior driving things and also how is the government coping with all of these evolutions? Because for me, the shift in the UK from Uber, it brings three questions or reflections. I think one on the company level, I think there's a revolution going on in the gig economy. If you read about delivery services with COVID, 40% of people who never use that, um, I just there's an increase of delivery with 40% of people who never ordered something online before and that's behavior that's gonna stay. So actually, if you look beyond the pandemic, It's quite expected that the demand for gig services, I would say, is just going to explode as well. So maybe it's just also a move to be more competitive and make sure that you have the people to reach those goals, because maybe we're just not too target uh, obsessed enough like in China, I would say that you actually need to motivate people to do something. I think on the individual level, there's a big question of what's the value of freedom, because if you work for Uber, but also for Lyft and for other driver services, I mean, You only have 24 hours in a day. So if all those companies are going to pay you minimum wage and all those companies are going to give you holiday pay, I mean, how are you going to shift that choice set? And do you have exclusivity contracts then with those companies? Do they become incumbents? Or is there a real freedom revolution where there's true supply and demand in the economy of work? I think that might be a very exciting future ahead. And then to maybe just state the polarity, today we had a strike in Belgium (laughs) <laughs> so, um, I'm just questioning how much flexibility do we need from our regulators and governments as well to cope with this uh, new realities. So, I think interesting questions ahead and I wouldn't back it up to the back of the shelf, to be honest.
1: Yeah, If you want to talk about the value of freedom, China is always a good place to start, of course, uh, but um, I would try to say that if you look at this gig economy, uh, for example, a company called Meituan, uh, the biggest uh, delivery company in the world. They actually had a big issue, I think it was two months ago or a month ago, I can't remember exactly, where um, the AI system was so efficient that actually uh, it found ways to get the fastest from the store to the house of people they had to deliver it. The problem is the AI system didn't figure out that sometimes there's traffic regulations you have to abide with and some things you cannot do. And so they just figured out that if all these drivers do it this way, then that's probably the right way. But all these drivers were doing it the wrong way. And so the AI system was learning based on how the behavior was actually uh, just trying to deliver faster. And there was a lot of uh, discussion on uh, social media in China that this is not humane and you can't have these drivers drive like crazy. And so they were uh, on social media starting to respond and say, yeah, we have to do something about it and it's not fair and let's stop buying anything from Meituan. That was the kind of story. And so people started to not buy anymore. And what they did is within 24 hours, they added 20% on the delivery time. So now it's like 36 minutes instead of 30 minutes. So it's a lot better. And so this means that you see in China, they're really looking at the data to actually decide how to improve uh, the life of the people, of the workers. And for Didi, I don't know if you remember, but we were with uh, Nextworks at Didi just two years ago, 2019, end of 2019. And that's the moment where they said that the way to actually give benefits to their drivers is to include them into the program itself. It means that they are helping the drivers with leases to buy the cars, and they get cheaper gas. So they do a lot of things that is more value. so they can actually use that later on. And they calculated that a driver at Didi earns about three times than if they would do another job with the same qualification that the person has. And so they're calculating how to improve the life of these people. And at the same time, they're of course locking them into Didi, which is good, but they have a car at the end. So I think there's ways to go around there.
3: Yeah, Pascal, I really like that because apart from whatever people are saying about the gig economy, I mean not everything is bad about it. There's this guy here in my city, Kortrijk real city people, and he worked at the DIY store here and he changed. He's now working for Deliveroo. He was one of these guys, I mean, you go to the DIY store, very big guy so hard to miss. And uh, all of a sudden he was at my door with my delivery meal and I was like, wow, seriously you were working at the DIY store, no? And he said like, no, no, I Switch jobs because now I can choose when I work. It actually, it pays better than when I was working in the DIY store. It gives me a lot more, and, and there we have it again, freedom. And at the same time, I think we have this big discussion about worker rights and everything around it. But at the same time, there are also people like him who voluntarily choose to work for a company like Uber or Didi or whatever. So I'm really wondering how bad it really is with their rights and their payments if people choose for that and we don't have insights i think about that right
1: no i don't have insights but i do believe that the way to calculate you should sell to these drivers and sell them something that shows that their life is improving and mm-hmm. and this is exactly what didi has been very successful at and and one of the cool things about uh, because uber went like 75 percent down in traffic didi actually went up Even during the pandemic, there was uh, actually the business was quite well. Also, because any driver that was also pretty cool any driver that would have caught COVID 19 would get an instant 4,000 euro pay if they get infected just to encourage them, despite all the measures that was taken, because there was plastic behind them and everything, and they cleaned constantly, they would just get that. And that gave them a feeling that the company actually cared to deliver uh, the people, specifically in Wuhan. Anybody who lived in that city and needed to go to hospital, or was working for a hospital, they got free rights. And so you see that they're part of society somehow, and I think that's maybe the way to go about
2: But I love this idea of flexibility and freedom and being able to choose what you do and when you do it. And that's why I had an interview this morning with a journalist uh, about legislation that is being produced here in Belgium to bring back the punch clock at every levels of employees. You know, the, the old time registration where you have to clock in. And I think it's a great example of the fact that you have all these new opportunities and new concepts, and then we throw back some really old ancient mechanism at that to actually counter that. I think that is not what we want to do, absolutely.
4: No, I think the market will react as well. A delivery is going to the stock exchange later this week in London, and there are even institutions that just would not be invest in the Deliveroo because they don't have the worker rights or a basic minimum so I think it will play out in terms of a sort of employer branding point of view as well so I think those dynamics will play out eventually.
5: I think it's really ironic that Pascal you were talking about uh, in China that uh, they were really listening to the people when the drivers aren't treated well Well, I heard about this news, I thought it was this week, that big tech in the U.S. is now the biggest lobbyist ever in the U.S. compared to the others, so that they are lobbying for laws instead of doing something to the rights of the workers.
1: I think one of the main differences between what's happening in China, and I don't know why that's not happening here, is that the netizens are much more powerful So when they really start saying this is not okay, then suddenly people stop buying their services or products. And I don't see that happening in the West, and I have no idea why.
2: Well, maybe we're creatures of habit, and I think it's it's, it's sometimes so easy and convenient to just keep using the service. But I think you're right. Maybe we should find
0: ways to actually stand up more and make sure that our voices are heard. And there are more alternatives in China, is my feeling. There's always someone who does more or less the same or a new company that pops up. We just don't have that many alternatives. If we don't use Deliveroo or if we don't use Uber Eats, then who's left to use? So we don't always have the choice to go there. And on the other hand, if it's cheap and if it's convenient and people stick to it, there's a big difference between what people say they find important and what people actually do in their day-to-day behavior. There's a big difference between attitude and behaviors. And apparently that's different in China. It's a good
2: idea, I think, for all of us to maybe say, you know, to really, really understand the gig economy, we should maybe all spend a week, you know, as an Uber driver or as a Deliveroo deliverer. I mean, let's, let's by next radar, figure out what we're going to do
0: in the gig economy for one week. Very good uh-huh. idea
4: sell nfts
0: i'm gonna order stuff and i cannot wait until you bring it to my house peter (laughs) exactly you're the one
3: always saying that you have to cycle more peter so i think this is your time to shine no i was thinking more task rabbit kind of stuff but we'll figure it out by next radar
4: i can make a list it's okay
3: Before we end this, um, there's actually a worker shortage in the gig economy in the U.S. right now because of COVID. So I think the system is going to level itself, right? I think if there are not enough drivers, they are going to pay them more in the end. So they will have to solve this problem anyway. So that's a good thing. And on the other hand, maybe it's just me and I might be too European, but I'm a little bit stingy. Have you ever tipped your Deliveroo driver? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You you guys do that? Okay. Sorry. Yeah. It's it. That okay. is just me. It's yeah. Okay. I'm I'm from the I'm from the west of Flanders. Don't but worry. Chinese yeah, don't
1: tip either, so that's fine. I'm
0: we I'm don't have people. deliveroo in Knesselade. <laughs>
3: nope. Yeah. Same camp, okay. Steven. <laughs> I'll have to do something about it. But I'm one of these people. I'm I'm from the west of Flanders. I think like we don't spend money like. Uh, well, you're yeah.
0: still young. You can still change.
3: Exactly. I have to do that.
4: So you don't reward people. You, that's that's not good for our nextworks economy. We have to think more value driven. It's not. It's <laughs> not really.
0: It's you can not, give them a nextcoin next time. Well, that's yeah, a good idea. Just say, give me your rally idea, and I'll give you a coin.
3: Yeah, I wonder how they will look at me when I mention that. But uh,
2: but I'm glad we've elevated the discussion of a global podcast to knessalada
0: and the delivery options. It that, always good... comes down to knessalada, Peter. At the end of the day. <laughs> But guys, time to move to the next topic. And I think we need to make a monthly topic out of this, the Disney topic of the month or something like this. (laughs) Uh, A lot of Disney fans in this podcast. And um, good news for Disney, they are beating Netflix, which is actually really cool eh? because this is a Phoenix company beating a unicorn at its own territory. And Peter, you're also a Disney fan just like me, so I can assume that you've been studying this in the last couple of days.
2: Absolutely, and I'm not just a Disney fan. I'm really in awe of what they've done, being able to transform and reinvent themselves over and over again. And I think that's part of the DRA and the culture. It's also something that I've written about in The Phoenix and the Unicorn, because Disney is one of the cases there, but they just keep going at it. And the big news, of course, was they passed the 100 million subscribers on Disney+, which is quite spectacular, because it took them exactly 16 months to actually go from zero to 100 million. And in comparison, it took Netflix 10 years to actually go from zero to 100 million. And now we have the CEO of Disney being extremely bullish and saying they're targeting 260 million subscribers by 2024. And I think what is really interesting is back in 2018, Netflix was worth more than Disney back in 2018. And if you saw the rebound of Disney as a phoenix, it's quite spectacular. I mean, uh, the shares of Disney have basically doubled in the last 12 months. And you can see that it's not just consumers who get excited about Disney+, Plus; it's investors who get excited about this phoenix phenomenon as well. So maybe it's not a Disney thing that we have to make a regular on these podcasts, but the phoenix phenomenon, because I really believe we're going to see a hell of a lot of those in the next couple of years. But
0: it's crazy, yeah, that the stock Doubled. Their parks were closed. Movie theaters were closed. It even makes it more impressive. And, you know, I saw that 80% of the new content that Disney will create will go directly to Disney Plus. They didn't just launch Disney Plus during the pandemic. They used the pandemic to completely reinvent the business model. They used to create content, then it went to the movie theaters. And then a few months after that, it came to home theaters. Now, 80% of their content is going directly to home theaters knowing that more than 50% of the revenues of movie theaters came from Disney, and knowing that they will change that model. I mean, this is going to totally change that industry. And Disney took that opportunity to go directly to the end user. And it's just impressive how fast they turned and how much they invest in it. They're also going to invest $18 billion a year into new content for Disney+. Plus. So it's crazy how fast they turned that around.
2: Yeah, and I think what is spectacular is that I do believe that once the pandemic dies down, I think the theme parks are going to be a big, big hit again because people want to celebrate and it's going to be something where they really want to have that experience. But I'm not sure we're going to see the same in the movie theaters because honestly, if I look at our environment, you know, it's been a period where we actually invested in making sure that our home environment is absolutely up to par but it's not just investment in technology, but you know, we now have Netflix and we have Disney Plus and we have Amazon and my God, I mean, I'm paying quite a lot every month for this content. Why would I go to a movie theater where I don't have the comfort of doing it in my own home? So I think the theme parks are going to have a big boost once the pandemic is over, but I'm not so optimistic that we're gonna see the same in the movie theaters.
4: Couldn't agree more and super excited at what Disney is doing. One big question I have there, and maybe Steven, you is the biggest Disney fan in the room. I think we can say that. I'm uh, not sure. Um, yeah. But uh, what Disney Plus is doing is they're bringing non-Disney content as well. Disney is the world maker where there's really all about their content and their content creations, their world creations. But now you can also just watch a ton of other content via Disney Plus, so I'm curious, like in terms of branding, like what aspect are we expecting there?
0: Oh, but if you go to Disney+, Plus, they actually created different worlds and different brands. Eh? You, you can select a typical Disney content, and then you will only see Disney content. Or you can choose Star, and then you have the whole library of movies that they acquired. Eh? And then you have the content that is linked to Fox, you have Marvel. So I think Disney is one of the best brand builders in the world. And if you think about it, one of the smartest moves was to acquire Marvel. Because if you go to Universal Studios, for instance, the big competitor in terms of theme parks... It's filled with Disney IP right now. It's filled with Marvel superhero attractions that are actually owned by Disney. So if you go to Universal Studios and you go on the Spider-Man ride, you're actually bringing money to Disney while you're in their competing parks. So they invested in the right brands in a very smart way. And you see that reflected in Disney+, Plus. is my feeling.
3: And I'm really curious, like... Are these brands not the reason why Disney Plus is successful in the first place of and course. why they grew so fast? Because in the beginning of this talk, we already said that content is not very valuable at a certain level. No, no, you, at the said, same that. Time, you said that. You said that. Absolutely, yes. I'm sorry. I said that. But when it goes for Disney, I mean, they have such a big catalog filled with movies and series and whatsoever. And it's also not very expensive. Stephen, maybe, you know, six, seven euros Six, seven
0: euros. And I fully agree. It's the branding power. And we all love the brand Netflix, but the brand of the individual content of Netflix is so much lower in strength than Disney's. I mean, if you walk outside in San Francisco, probably half of them is wearing something from Disney, eh? whether it's Star Wars or it's Marvel superheroes or it's the original Disney. There's hardly anyone that wears a House of Cards t-shirt at the same time. And if you go to schools, it's filled with Disney-branded, you know, logos everywhere. So we wear Disney every day. We promote Disney every single day. So the brands, in terms of content, are just the strongest in the world.
5: It depends maybe on which series, like Stranger Things, I think is a really strong brand, but not as strong, Stephen.
0: That's one one brand, yeah, (laughs) that's one brand. You found it. You found the exception, Laurence.
4: Yay. But maybe on that point of Netflix and building its brands, I think they definitely geared up in terms of making their own contents. If you see that evolution on the channel as well, uh, do you guys like it? Or do you think they're succeeding there?
0: Of course. I think what Netflix is doing is really smart to work with a, a network of local production firms. We have very successful French series now, like Lupin, you have the Spanish ones, you even have Belgian ones. So they are building a network of local production firms that need Netflix to be successful. I've been in touch with a number of those companies recently, and Netflix is just bringing their food. It's their bread and butter. So they are fighting to work for Netflix, and it's crucial to them, whereas Disney is creating their own content in Disney Studios. Netflix is much more important for the total world of TV production right now. So that's absolutely a value that they bring, and I think it's a smart move forward.
3: For me, the real question here is really, like, how many of these streaming services can actually exist? I mean, we have Netflix, we have Disney+, Plus, we have HBO Now. I, I, I can go on forever, but how many are going to survive and how many can exist before people are saying, like, I'm out, I don't care anymore, it's just too much money, I cannot pay six, seven streaming services? That's a question I really have.
1: Yeah, we need more lockdowns, huh?
0: Yeah. Jürgen, you're you're too young for this, but when I was younger, I bought DVDs of films that I really liked and it was 25 euros for a DVD. I can get three streaming services or four streaming services for that, for the price of one DVD. So it's still extremely cheap if you compare it with the previous model.
3: Of course, but you own the DVD. If you stop paying for the Streaming service, you don't own anything.
0: So, it, look
3: at it as a collector's item for and for streaming services. I'm not too sure about that, but fingers crossed that uh, the small I can't,
0: I can't even NFT my old DVDs, huh? so they're completely, completely <laughs> the worthless.
3: Is
5: out.
0: <laughs> but talking about Netflix, so they're doing a lot of good things. And Laurence, you also wanted to add something positive about Netflix that they are now actually calculating the carbon footprint of video streaming. Tell us more about that.
5: Yes, so just like my Spotify story, uh, this news has everything to do with transparency. So Netflix has been working with the University of Bristol to calculate the carbon footprint of its services. They have a tool called Dimpact, which was developed to help digital services like video streaming to calculate their carbon footprints. And Netflix claims that one hour of streaming on its platform in 2020 used less than 100 grams of carbon dioxide. That is less than driving an average car for about 400 meters. Now, many people seem to think that that's very little, but you also have to remember that Netflix has more than 200 million subscribers and even more users who watch it more than three hours per day. But besides that, I think it's a fantastic evolution that companies are starting to make their impact on the environment seriously. And it's great that they are openly sharing real statistics rather than doing some greenwashing and putting the words purpose and people on their walls. And it's also really great that the public is becoming increasingly aware of the environmental impact of technology, which is obviously a lot more hidden and complex than let's say the use of uh, plastics for packaging. Bitcoin mining, for instance, has an enormous carbon footprint and energy consumption. So maybe this increase in transparency could even result in some sort of, I don't know, environmental impact ranking of companies, which could maybe even form the basis of some form of taxation or maybe even a reward system. And I thought it was interesting that marketing expert uh, Scott Galloway suggested that there could be some kind of net promoter score or MPS equivalent of that. And so there's still a lot of work to be done, of course, but I think that being fully transparent about it is a solid step forward towards trying to reduce the numbers.
4: Yeah, I agree, Laurence. It's good to see those stories indeed popping up, but I would say not even just for technology because for me, everybody is talking about sustainability, but as Stephen also said earlier, between behavior and attitude, it's a different thing so i'm wondering what's really shifting our behavior because we might say that we care about the environment etc but i'm not sure like having a sort of test or measurement will actually convince me to also shift my behavior i mean not talking for me as a person but i had a great conversation with Gilles Peters last year about that she was bringing the weather for the local news station in belgium and she also said we're doing a horrible job in in telling the story on why we should care about this we're throwing scientific measurements around and then we expect people to understand them and say, yes, we're target-driven, let's do that. So I'm curious, where is going to be the big story about sustainability? Of course, you need those systems, you need those commitments on a big scale, but I'm still waiting for that big story also to just make sure that everybody's on board for these big global targets to meet together.
0: Yeah, and you see crazy things eh, in terms of environment. Like I saw, Pascal, that China is turning a desert in an oasis and that they're going crazy now and see if they can scale this experiment and do the same to the Sinai Desert. So what's going on there?
1: Well, they actually already did it. Um, So (laughs) it's not a plan anymore. It's the last 20 year plans. No, I think, uh, I mean, we always love to talk about the future, but uh, uh, talking about the past might be also giving us an insight on how our future could look like. And what China did indeed is in an area the size of France, which is just north of the Himalayas, under Mongolia. This was the origin of the civilization of China. So we're going back to 10,000 years ago, Mesopotamia, and this area is called the Leos Plateau. And this is where Xi'an, the, the first uh, capital of China, started, because this was actually the origin of Chinese civilization. And it was an extremely fertile ground. And what happened in the last thousand years, humanity destroyed it. And that has a lot to do with agriculture and has a lot to do with deforestation and also uh, a lot of herding of sheep and goats. And uh, so that destroyed the whole climate there. And I went there in '93, So that's almost uh, 30 years ago. I went there. And uh, it's a story I'm not going to tell, because it's going to take me probably another 20 minutes. And I almost died in the desert of the Loess Plateau. But that is a real story I'll tell one day. But the reality is, I can confirm that this area in '93 was the driest place on earth. It was really a, a desert, an enormous place, the size of France. The poorest place also in China at that time. It was a terrible place to live in. And that's maybe one of the reasons I almost died and nobody could get me to hospital, but I'll tell you that story another time. The interesting thing is that in '95, two years after I visited that area, China decided to change that purpose and to change the millions and millions of people into an environment of green. And it was very difficult to do because they first... Forbid people to uh, cut down trees, people could also not have their animals roam freely and, uh, and, and farming on slopes was not allowed. So there was a lot of things like typical Chinese government, you can't do all these things. And of course, a lot of local people got very upset and they said, yeah, but how are we going to live? We already have nothing, we need to survive here. And then they came up with a five-year plan, (laughs) and it ended up becoming a 20-year plan. But the whole idea was like, okay, we need to do two things. First of all, this is a desert. Nobody wants a desert. So how about we give usage rights of land for every farmer? And then we're going to pay these farmers to change the desert into a green environment. And then they will be allowed, after it's done, to actually... Uh, work their land and earn the profits from that land, and the government guaranteed even that they would buy stuff from that land in the beginning. And so little by little we got millions and millions of farmers that actually helped to make terraces, to basically plant trees, and I'm talking about billion trees, And over a time of 20 years, this became one of the most beautiful ecological environments in China, with rivers and forests and grassland, just like Mongolia, and fishes and birds and everything that you see in the Walt Disney movies. And so this is really a great environment. And the reason I believe they succeeded in it is because they combined the ecological goals with economical goals for the people locally. And so this had an economic target that they put on it. And now it's something that a lot of people have seen. There's a great movie made from it uh, that's eight years old to show how the difference was. And uh, a lot of people are now copying that model in India in the Sinai Desert. That's the article you probably read. uh, A Dutch engineer that wants to turn the Sinai Desert, which is between Egypt and Israel, A very big desert and he wants to turn this completely green and he's just going to copy paste uh, the chinese model uh, and change it a little bit because it's a different environment but i think that is something that in a way is inspirational because it could save the planet more than waiting for maybe politicians to do something about the environment cool very cool
3: Yeah, indeed, Pascal, there's a very good example of what you're saying as well going on in Africa right now. eh? The African Union decided back in 2007 already to reforest, I think, 100 million hectares of uh, desert over there but they are struggling with the same things as the Chinese, because indeed they have to say, no, you cannot cut down that tree. You cannot use that tree to do this or that. And it's not happening. And now they are working together with the people living there to actually make it livable for them. And, um, I don't know how it's going right now. I don't have the latest update, but it's progressing finally.
1: Yeah, and it's an example that in China, it's really about including the farmers in the whole plan and try to get them to do the stuff that you want them to do and then think and listen to them, but not just like here. In Belgium, often when you listen to people, they say, no, 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 you can't do that. No, you have to give them a reason and some benefits to do it. And so money is always something, specifically in poor areas, that works very well, specifically if it's not just once money, but money on the long term, so that their children can then later go to school instead of working on the land and so on. So it's it's the whole big picture that is getting more and more important. And I do believe that China has shown a great example of how to do it. And... Africa will definitely benefit from it because it's also socially very interesting. I mean, if you look at most deserts in the world, I mean, there's also dangerous places often, there's migration issues. I mean, there's a lot of issues in these places, so making them green could actually change also the social problems that we have for the future. So I'm very positive that we should export these ideas from China, but I'm biased. (laughs)
5: <laughs> I did some research on the Lewis platform project and, and what they have been able to achieve by planting these trees on top hills and these terraces and, and building dams this is fantastic and really impressive. But I encountered one challenge that apparently what the project needs to watch out for is the afforestation bit or the fact that they plant trees because planted forests in really dry areas um, consume a lot of water so they develop more slowly they have more diseases and they are therefore not very stable and durable but I think what I'm trying to say here I guess is that it's great that we are using our imagination and science to re-green dead areas but I think it would be even better if we would just not let green areas die out.
0: Let's go to our last topic uh, guys. We're making this recording here in a Zoom call so we can see each other. And uh, that doesn't always help is what we learned in this episode. Uh, <laughs> but there's also um, really cool news, actually, um, that came from uh, related to Zoom. And, you know, Julie, you can you can share it. But it reminded me so much to the early days of email when we basically did the same thing with email. I'll let it to you to share what this company decided to yeah. do.
4: And I'm, I'm even not sure whether I like it, but uh, more on that later. But uh, it's a fact that there's a whole debate now, like when can you do a Zoom meeting? So I must say, Stephen, I think you owe us one. You owe us a day of holidays somewhere in May, because um, if we would be working at Citigroup there, they actually decided no more zoom calls on friday um so we're not a friday we're a monday so that's good news for you Stephen. but no more zoom meetings after 8 p.m and i mean we heard peter's clocks that means (laughs) 8 p.m has passed so i mean you owe us one Um, you have to acknowledge the facts you know The whole month I've been in meetings as well with companies like we're having like uh, prohibited moments to email or prohibited moments to be online. And I get it. Of course, we have to make sure that we take care of ourselves and that we're balanced. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that making those rules in then. yes and then no, I think that's really not going to solve it just like it didn't do it with email. So I hate it when people say to me when I can do things uh, and when not. Imagine the gig workers and you're saying you shall not drive after 8 p.m. I mean, that's not going to stick. So um, I'm a little bit fed up and missing that bigger picture, as Pascal said as well, in the future of work. Like, let's just create a menu of options for people to choose from, because, I mean, Work is not the big evil thing. You just have to make sure you do something you like and, and are doing that in a circumstance that is balanced for you and makes you happy when you do so and that you have the choice to, to do it when you want it.
0: Imagine oh. that half of your staff just is, is very performant on Friday to do Zoom calls. Then you miss out on that completely.
4: Yeah,
2: maybe. <laughs> I don't know what the problem is with not doing emails on Friday. I mean, you guys work with me. You know I never respond to emails on <laughs> Friday. So I Even think that Monday. works really well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well. In China, they don't use emails anymore anyway. So. <laughs> Have they ever?
0: <laughs> do they still do Zoom calls?
1: Yes, they do. Yes, yes. Also on Friday? Yeah, because the CEO of, uh, I mean, the founder of Zoom is a Chinese, so that's okay.
4: But no, it's also, actually blocked. <laughs> you could ask the question, what you get in return. I mean, Sofina actually gave their people forty days of holidays. So I'm, I'm wondering what that is compensating for. So, I mean, where does it end? Uh, I think it's.
3: Should he be looking at you right now? Yeah, 40 but days the,
4: of quest- holidays? the question, what is it compensating for you? so we'll see. Yeah, about that. We'll give
0: you some next coins, uh, Joran. That's how we take care of things now. <laughs> Fabulous.
4: And if Peter could make an NFT of scaringpeterhinson.com on Instagram, that would be a hit. I think.
0: That I looked at scaring Peter Hinson, uh on Instagram this weekend with my children, actually, and they they loved it. But we were like craving for more content. There's not that many new content. Huh?
2: I will pass it along to the content production team. I'm sure they will love your your cry for for
0: more. Because I know there is material already available that hasn't been posted yet. (laughs) All right. So let's close it here before we start talking about more crazy stuff. Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do us a favor and uh, share it with two of your colleagues and say, this is something that you should listen to. You're going to like it. That would mean the world to us. And, yeah, we're going to be back in four weeks with episode number three of Radar Thanks for listening and take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.